Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for June 14th, 2018. On today's episode, we'll read a brief email in the mailbag and talk about today's film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Okay, guys, before we get into the news, uh, yesterday we talked about uh, the first photos from Wonder Woman 1984, and we were theorizing as to why uh, Steve Trevor, uh, Chris Pine, uh, is, uh, you know, back in the 1980s after, you know, uh, his fate in the first Wonder Woman film, uh, something I wanted to bring up during the discussion, but for whatever reason did, did not come up, um, a reader brought up in, in a letter to us. So I thought I'd read that before we get into the news. And that is Braden G. from Mineral Wells, Texas. Uh, he says that Diana was filled uh, with the sense of wonder and amazement uh, to the world uh, from that first Wonder Woman film. And basically he theorizes that Trevor, uh, since Trevor was there to guide her in that film, maybe she will be the one guiding Trevor in 1984. And that'll be kind of like the, the, the flip of the fish out of water story that we saw in the, the first film. Yeah, I think this is a good idea. And I think my favorite parts of the first Wonder Woman were when Diana is like wandering around and discovering ice cream and just like seeing how happy and excited she was and and like genuinely thrilled at such a simple mundane thing. That's like one of the most endearing parts of that movie. So the idea that she's going to be the one to guide Steve Trevor through a mall in the 1980s has a lot of potential, I think. Uh, Brad, what do you think about this one? Uh, yeah, I think it's a really cool idea because I mentioned it in the Slack yesterday in our group and no one cared. But now everyone's like, this is a cool idea. Um, no, it, as I said, it'll be a lot of fun, mostly because um, the the culture of the 80s is such a crazy departure from, you know, what it what it is during World War One with Wonder Woman. And so, you know, the, while there was a lot for Diana to take in and seeing what London was like, it's going to be even more of a drastic change for Steve Trevor to see what the 1980s are like compared to 
you know, the the World War One era. Okay, I think we've said enough about this. Let's get into the news. Let's start off. Yesterday, I was talking about, uh, you know, Disney's acquisition of 20th Century Fox. Uh, I probably talked, uh, you know, it's probably a little too soon because uh, just after we got off the air, Comcast officially put in its $65 billion all-cash bid for 21st Century Fox, uh, topping Disney's current bid. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so uh, Comcast has been promising slash threatening to do this for a long time now. They actually put in an offer back in December of last year uh, for the assets that are up for grabs uh, in terms of 21st Century Fox. We've talked a lot about this, so people probably know the general lay of the land in terms of you know what's uh, what's being sold, which is like the film studio and FX and FXX and um, you know basically just uh, the news division and some of the sports stuff is going to be left behind and, and spun off into another company. But um, so, yeah, Comcast put in a $65 billion all-cash bid for 21st Century Fox's assets, and that outbids Disney because Disney has a $52 billion bid in right now. Um, we don't know whether Disney's going to come back and try to... I, I'm guessing that this is going to turn into, like, the equivalent of a bidding war. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it for all intents and purposes... For consumers, there's not going to be much of a difference, I don't think, other than like if Comcast gets it, uh, we're not going to see the X-Men jump over into the MCU and stuff like that. But really, this whole thing is bad news, right? Because it's one less place for storytellers to try to get projects made because Fox is essentially disappearing and being you know, engulfed by another company. So um, that's bad news for anybody who values movies and tv that really take chances and color outside the lines because now that's one less place where people can go and, and sort of shop their crazy ideas around but yeah but um, it, it seems like that's happening either way so the question is, is wh right. what is the better home for 20th century fox yeah i don't know the answer to that question i think they're going to be they're, they're, fox is going to have to do a lot of thinking about that they're right now they're thinking about probably the money aspect of it because comcast is offered to pay fox shareholders like 35 dollars in cash per share where Disney's bid is all tied up in stock. Um, Comcast is also offered to pay like uh, breakup fees, like a $1.5 billion breakup fee that Fox would have to pay to Disney for backing out of the agreement if they ultimately decide to go with Comcast. So there's a lot of, uh, of financial stuff on the line here. But all of this really comes down to what was going on with AT&T and Time Warner. So AT&T has, has just run the gauntlet of the courts and the Department of Justice opposed AT&T's acquisition of Time Warner, which owns Warner Brothers and HBO and a bunch of other media companies. Um, but the U.S. government has just approved that acquisition. So now AT&T is going to be able to approve Time Warner. And now that basically gave Comcast the confidence to put in this bid because they're thinking that if the government regulation is not going to put a stop to the AT&T Time Warner deal, it's probably not going to be a factor if they try to acquire 20, 21st Century Fox's assets. I don't know. This this could be very interesting for consumers. Like, you know, what you said with, you know, the X-Men universe, Deadpool, all that, uh, potentially going back to Disney and, you know, combining with the MCU, uh, Disney. Uh, both of these companies have theme park assets. So Disney, you know, has uh, the Avatar land, uh, Pandora, um, the world of Avatar mm -hmm. in their Florida park. And, uh, you know, Comcast owns Universal, which, you know, has all those Universal Studios uh, around the globe. So, uh, you know, I actually think that Disney would be the better home, if only because 
there's already so much crossover with the kind of movies that Universal and Fox make. And if Fox goes to Disney, then like Disney will mostly let Fox like continue to do some of the things that they're already good at. And since Disney hasn't really done much as far as their like Touchstone Pictures banner or anything like that, it could allow them to get back to like to making movies like that and be a little bit more open with like more you know adult centric movies rather than focusing on you know kid adventures and animated movies. So I, I feel like Disney is just better all around for as far as being a little bit more open for a variety of ideas and movies. Yeah, you do make a, make a good point. Comcast uh, would c- conflict with a lot of the stuff they're doing movie wise. And also, we should we should mention D- Disney's streaming service that they're launching. Uh, you know, if they got the the Fox catalog, that would uh, you know do a lot to get uh, people to spend their money to subscribe to the an- another streaming service. But like on the other side of that coin, really quickly, not to belabor this point, but on the other side of that coin, um, if Disney pulls in these assets that means that everything that they do will in the future will have to sort of conform to the disney brand uh, to some degree assuming that they that they you know have some sort of oversight and don't necessarily let them continue operating autonomously so maybe if maybe it would be better if comcast got it because then they would just sort of keep making the type of the types of movies that they've been making Right. I don't know. It's I, <laughs> there's I, a lot of factors in here. There, there's a lot of factors. But I feel like if Disney does acquire Fox, they're going to keep Fox as a separate brand, a more adult brand. I, I feel I don't know. I, maybe I'm completely wrong, but I think they're probably going to do what they did with, you know, Touchstone Pictures and all those uh, uh, those labels they had back in the day, you know, Miramax and, and stuff. Um, but I don't know. We'll have to wait and see see how this pans out. Uh, you know, this is uh, the uh, quote unquote official movie pod uh, movie podcast of Movie Pass, and uh, so we got to talk about Movie Pass and what's been going on there. Um, movie Pass has recently re- reached a new subscriber milestone. Brad, what is it, and what does this mean? So, Movie Pass now officially has over three million subscribers. Before, there were a lot of analysts saying they weren't sure if Movie Pass would last through the summer, but it seems like they're still going strong. A new press release from Movie Pass says that they're uh, on track to meet the five million subscriber prediction that they said that they would meet before the end of 2018. So, really, this just seems like Movie Pass kind of. Uh, trying to boost the confidence of their users and anyone who maybe hasn't gotten on because they think the service is going to go under, being like, hey, we're still here. Look at all the people who are still taking advantage of our service, and we're not going to go under. Um, and so that combined you know, with uh, their reiteration of the fact that they're now in the movie distribution business, they just struck up a deal um, to get the library and production slate of Emmett Furla production, ba- um, production. So they're really doing everything they can to figure out ways to um, you know, monetize the the film industry basically and distributing and make sure that they can give their subscribers exclusive access to certain movies, uh, give subscribers, you know, an outlet to see movies being promoted and get those movies in front of their eyes so that they'll go out and see them in theaters, uh, using their movie pass, taking advantage of it and that kind of thing. And in, uh, in addition to that, they're also looking to expand and make this a little bit more friendly to people who aren't just individuals going to see movies with their friends uh, they're um, they're going to create a movie pass family plan that will allow you to bring people with you. Um, there'll be plans that will enable families of up to four people to purchase tickets all at once under one account. There'll also be a plan where you'll be able to uh, 
uh, bring a friend with you at some point, so you're not just going to the movies by yourself. Uh, so it's they're they're definitely starting to look at the bigger picture and make this a little bit more engaging, so that it's adds to the experience of going to the movies. You know, since you, normally you don't go to movies by yourself, I personally like going to the movies by myself. Sometimes it's just nice to be able to check out and not have to worry about you know talking to anybody afterwards and just think think with your thoughts. Um, but yeah, so Movie Pass certainly isn't operating as if they're on the verge of. Uh, going under or anything like that, and it seems like they're starting to move towards the the goal that they had set out from the beginning when they initiated this new price plan. As a MoviePass subscriber, I, I am definitely happy that they're moving moving towards you know uh, group subscription plans because that's been one of the big problems. Is like you have to go to the kiosk and hope that you can get a seat next to the person that you're seeing the movie with um, in markets that there's uh, reserve seating. Uh, and, uh, but I think like the, the, the most important thing to, uh, to get out of this is, you know, movie passes, uh, claim, you know, we don't know if this claim is true, but they're saying on peak weeks, it nears 8% of the box office is contributed by movie pass subscribers. And, uh, I, I really think that's going to be it for movie pass. Like if they're going to survive, if they're going to actually not uh, go under, like a lot of analysts predict, it's going to be because they're going to get a considerable market share of that uh, theatrical viewing experience. And if they can, then uh, as you said, Brad, uh, they're going to be able to convince uh, movie theaters or movie studios to somehow uh, discount the tickets and they'll, they'll find a way to make it. It's just a question of how can they get, uh, you know, to that point before they go under. And uh, we'll, we'll be watching this because I know a lot of our listeners are, are MoviePass uh, sub- subscribers. So, yes, uh, let's move on to the box office. And uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, we finally have the first tracking numbers. Ben, you wrote this up for the site. How is the new Marvel Studios movie going to do on opening weekend? Yes, so the earliest projections uh, from Deadline say that basically there, there's a range from 69 million to 80 million is what they're predicting for the opening weekend for Ant-Man and the Wasp. That would be way better than the 57 million that the first movie opened to. So it seems like uh, things are moving up in the Ant-Man world. I mean, obviously, this is nowhere near the huge record-setting success of Avengers Infinity War, but that's the good thing about having a movie like this with low expectations, nobody was expecting it to, you know, or is expecting it to perform on that level. So uh, the fact that it's jumping up a little bit, or or at least according to these early numbers, um, is is definitely good news for Marvel and um, kind of a a cool thing for uh, Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly and all the people who are in the movie. So, um, yeah, I I mean, the first Ant-Man was the second lowest opening weekend behind The Incredible Hulk. So, to put that in its rearview mirror, basically, and, and sort of move on from that will be nice for, for Marvel Studios, I think. Now, for the summer movie wager, I put this film at number six. I'm starting to feel a little bit better at, about that, but I'm not feeling good about my Incredibles pick at number uh, five. <laughs> because mm. we have word mm. that that's uh, out-tracking Finding Dory right now in, in advanced ticket sales. I'm so. feeling pretty good about that, Peter. I put it at number two, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's move on to Twin Peaks. People have been wondering if season four will happen. Uh, most people thinking it won't happen. But, Ben, you wrote this article on the, on the site uh, saying that we shouldn't rule it out just yet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, David Lynch, one of the co-creators of Twin Peaks, was asked, you know, the the Emmys are coming up, so there's a lot of interviews going on right now for uh, people talking about the TV shows that they've been working on over the past year, trying to get 
um, you know, uh, Emmy voters to take their show seriously and, and pay attention and vote for them in the, the different categories and stuff. And David Lynch has been doing some interviews. And uh, one of the reporters asked him if he was finished forever with the world of Twin Peaks. And he replied, well, for right now, you could say I don't want to talk about that. So that's not an outright denial. And the fact that he used the phrase for right now to me implies that he's sort of leaving the door open for more episodes if he chooses to do that. He also elsewhere in that same interview was talking about how it's really tough to make a movie these days. And he, you know, praised cable television, said that cable TV is the new art house. People have freedom and can make a continuing story. So it sounds like he definitely wants to continue working in TV in some form, whether or not that takes the form of new Twin Peaks episodes remains to be seen. But Kyle MacLachlan, who starred, he actually played multiple roles in Twin Peaks The Return, which is the most recent season on Showtime. Uh, he is interested in coming back. He said, I think those kinds of things when talking about like a, a, a possible season four, I think those kinds of things are certainly possible. I think we're uh, all just waiting on David to have the spark of an idea to go forward. It would be a great journey. I would drop everything to do that is what he said. So, uh, yeah, basically don't rule it out yet. It's not, you know, nothing is set in stone, but it's possible that it could come back. My only problem with this is I feel like the ending of Twin Peaks, The Return was pretty solid as is. And I don't know that if they're going to be able to recapture the magic of of that weird and like supremely weird season of television um, because it was operating on such a high level, even though I didn't love every episode of it, it, it wrapped up in a pretty perfect way in very much in keeping with the tone of the show. And I don't know if they're going to be able to come back and, and top themselves. I feel like they would be, you know, uh, I don't know. There's something almost greedy about the idea of coming back for a season four because of how sort of miraculous the third season was uh, as a whole. So um, did either of you get a chance to catch up with Twin Peaks? Uh, have you have either of you seen the third season? I have not. I've never actually even watched the original Twin Peaks. So it was not on my radar as something that I went out of my way to try to, to check out. Man, it is wild. I, I caught up with the first two seasons before the return and because uh, it was on Netflix. I think it might still be on Netflix, but um, man, what a what a wild show. So yeah, I, I think there's still the possibility of a fourth season. I don't know if that's a great idea, but I guess we'll have to wait and see if, uh, if Showtime or maybe some other network is going to throw a bunch more money at David Lynch to do this. And if it does happen, it's probably going to be a little while because it was such a huge undertaking. He and Mark Frost co-wrote all 18 episodes of uh, Twin Peaks The Return and Lynch himself directed all of those episodes. So it was like a huge uh, creative challenge for them to get this thing up and going again. So I don't know if they're going to be able to top themselves, but uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is a thing that we won't see a new season of that for like 10, 15 years. What was it, like 18 years between? It was like 25, 26 20, years, wow. I think. Yeah, oh, it wow. was a huge, a huge break between uh, the second season which left off on like this huge cliffhanger and and then the beginning of uh, of Twin Peaks the Return. That's crazy. Okay, let's move on to another TV show that we may never see. Uh, this uh its first season and that is uh Seth Green's Star Wars Detours. It was produced before Disney bought uh Lucasfilm and has been sitting in the vault ever since, but some new trademark filings might indicate that we could finally get to see it brad what do we know as we know star wars has plenty of things they're working on all the time comic books uh video games animated series live action series coming up all that jazz but for a while they've had 
around 40 episodes of this animated series called Star Wars Detours just sitting on the shelf. Uh, you know, it was uh, announced back in 2010. They had episodes ready to go around 2013. But this was just after Lucasfilm was bought by Disney and the project was postponed and then uh, basically just left on the shelf indefinitely. And there's been no indication they're going to re-release it. Um, at one point in 2014, there were trademarks filed that made people think they might release it. And that's basically what has happened again this time is Lucasfilm has filed some trademarks uh, tied to all the different merchandise merchandising opportunities that they would usually take advantage of when it comes to Star Wars properties. Uh, some people have taken this to think maybe they're finally going to release Star Wars Detours. However, uh, based on our own sources, we've heard that there have there hasn't really been any discussions about that. And really what this just seems like is it's just Lucasfilm doing what a major corporation does and keeping their trademarks active just in case they would ever want to release it. Because the trademarks filed are the exact same ones that they filed back in 2014. And the way trademarks work, the timeline kind of works out for uh, the when you have to renew your trademark to keep them active because this animated series was in development in 2009, which means the trademark would have been registered that year. And then when you have to renew your trademark, it's after it's five years after the initial filing. So that would have been in 2014, which was the last time Lucasfilm filed trademarks for star Wars detours. When you renew for a second time, it's four years after your first renewal. And so since we're 2018, that's four years after the last time they filed in 2014. So this just seems like business as usual for Lucasfilm, just keeping the trademarks active, just in case they ever think, hey, you know what, let's put this out there. Um, but Now, there- now let, let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Disney okay. is gearing up to have this big streaming platform. They have 40 episodes in the can of a show that they could release on the streaming platform with you know minimal effort and call it a an original piece of Star Wars programming. Uh, you know why? Why hold on to it? Like I, I, I understand the reason they didn't release this after, like when it was scheduled to be released, because Disney wanted to, you know, take a hold of the Star Wars brand, and this was kind of like making a mockery of it. But I feel like you know now that we're a few films in, maybe you know the humor side of things is, you know, maybe that like the Disney streaming service would be the place for something like this. Yeah. I mean, it would make sense to throw it on there if anything, just because it is more original content. They already have it finished, but at the same time, the tone of this series is definitely far outside the line of what Lucasfilm has been doing with star Wars ever since Disney picked them up. Uh, they're focusing on stuff that is purely Canon stuff that feels, you know, safe within the, the world of star Wars. And this is something that is explicitly not, in line with what Lucasfilm has been doing with Star Wars lately. And while I do like the idea of doing things that are more outside of the box of what we would expect from Star Wars, um, th- this series itself, you know, it, it really doesn't feel like anything special. If anything, it's it's mostly geared towards younger viewers. Uh, the Even though it's from the creators of uh, Robot Chicken, Seth Green and uh, Matt Seinrich, they, uh, it's not an adult humor kind of thing. It, it feels more in tune with, like, the weirder side of cartoons you might find on Disney Channel or Nickelodeon, um, and the the humor itself is very slapstick and, and goofy, using signature characters and locations from the Star Wars universe. And so it's, you know, it has the potential to be fun for kids, but it, it's not really anything I think that fans would be excited to see if if that actually came to pass and it ended up on the streaming service. I don't know. I, I I've talked to people who have seen a few episodes of this, and they they you know adults, and they they seem to 
have loved it, but uh, they're also friends with Seth Green. So, <laughs> um, that, 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 you know, that, there's a conflict of interest there. Yeah, Ben, what do you think? Do you think that, like we'll ever see this? Man, I don't know. This I think I I'm leaning toward your uh, your read on this, Peter, where it might just be something that gets dropped onto the streaming service because while we've seen some of the things they have in store for that. I guess we haven't seen the full extent of their thing of their their uh, release strategy yet, and I think it would be nice for them to come out of the gate with as much stuff as possible. And this would definitely, you know, contribute to that and and be one more reason to get people to subscribe right out of the gate. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. And we have heard that they're working on multiple Star Wars shows for that. Uh, so maybe they could <laughs> just make this up as one of those shows. But as Brad mentions, our sources indicate that that is not the case, that there, you know, there's no plans at this time. But I don't know. I just, you know, I'm, I'm looking over at the horizon and I see the future and it, it seems like this would be the perfect <laughs> place for this. Uh, like, why file these trademarks? Like, if you're ever if you're never going to release this, you know, piece of content that you know, is in the vaults. That's that's the future, Peter. Peter, it's it's content as far as the eye can see. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's let's move on to uh, from Star Wars to Ewan McGregor, who has been cast in the Shining sequel, Doctor Sleep. Uh, what do we know about this, Ben? Yeah. So Variety confirms that Ewan McGregor has joined the cast of Doctor Sleep, which is a direct sequel to uh, Stephen King's The Shining. It is an adaptation of uh, a book that King wrote, and Ewan McGregor is going to be playing an adult version of Danny Torrance, who is the kid who screams red rum over and over again in in the Stanley Kubrick adaptation of uh, The Shining. So uh, Chris Evangelista, who, as regular listeners will know, is a huge Stephen King fan, is not a fan of this book. I haven't read it myself. But uh, I'm I'm interested to see what this movie does, because as Chris notes in his article here, uh, Kubrick's version of The Shining is way different than King's novel. So if this movie sort of takes that same path, it you know, it might not matter that the book is not great in Chris's eyes. So, um, I mean, it's being directed by Mike Flanagan, who directed Gerald's Game, which is another Stephen King adaptation that was on Netflix. I think it was last year. And I thought that was a pretty solid uh, thriller slash horror movie, whatever you want to call that. Um, Ewan McGregor is a great actor. So the idea of him, you know, jumping on board and and working with Flanagan is is a cool thing. But I'm just not sure about the story of this one. You can read the full synopsis of the book in the article on Slash Film, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But um, it's basically about a grown-up Danny Torrance who meets a young girl who has a bigger gift than he ever had in terms of the quote-unquote shining. So, um, yeah, and it's like a battle between good and evil, and there's, you know, a battle for this young girl's soul and survival. It's very, you know, Stephen King-esque. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, Peter, I, Brad, do you guys think – what do you think about this? I was going to say, I, I know we're in the king and I'm enjoying it so, so far with uh, it and, you know, the inspirations of, like, Stranger Things – but why is it that it seems like lately all the King properties that we hear about, uh, you know, that are getting made into movies and stuff are like the the 
the pieces of work from Stephen King that I would not want to see movies of. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a Pet Cemetery movie that's coming out that seems to have a pretty solid cast. And I'm I'm personally excited about Castle Rock, which is the Hulu show that is sort of set in like a Stephen King universe, the multiverse. So I don't know. We'll we'll see which ones, you know, you know how it is with all these projects getting announced, which ones are actually going to make it to the big screen. I don't know. It's it's like a race and we'll see which ones are actually able to cross the finish line. Yes. I want to see a remake of Cat's Eye. <laughs> I've never seen Cat's Eye. Should I see hey, it? Uh, well, before you see it, you should go listen to the, the song that was written for the movie because it is a 1980s gem, let me tell you. <laughs> um, fun fact, real quick about The Shining. Um, my uh, cousin's ex-husband, when he was a kid, um, they he was kind of like trying to be positioned as a child actor at this point. And he was in line to have the role of Danny Torrance in The Shining. It was down between him and the kid that actually got the role. Wow. That is nuts. Okay, let's move on to our last and final story. And this is actually kind of an internet mystery that has kind of gone viral the last 24 hours uh, involving Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, the question of what is in Marion Ravenwood's hand uh, when Indiana Jones shows up. Ben, I have never noticed this. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I'm sure all of us have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark and anybody listening to this podcast has seen the movie a bunch of times, I would guess. It's probably, you know, it's one of the best adventure movies ever made. But uh, there's something that happens in this movie that I've never noticed before. And uh, Ian McKamey, who on Twitter goes by iMac for real, pointed out that we don't really know exactly what Marion Ravenwood is is, uh, holding in her hands in the bar scene right after we first meet her. So you guys know the scene where she out drinks a huge guy in the bar and wins a bunch of cash in the process. She is holding something in her hands and she sees the shadow of Indiana Jones on the wall. He says, hello, Marion. And she turns around and throws these things out of her hands. She, She has her hands up to her temples and she throws whatever she's holding onto the ground. And then the movie sort of just picks up and, and runs from there. And I always assumed that she and, was and holding. It, it should be oh. mentioned in the movie, you hear a sound effect of glass breaking. So we, yes. we all assumed that it was the shot glasses. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I, I always assumed she was just holding shot glasses because we just saw her, you know, go. I think she drank like 14 shots or something crazy in that uh, in that contest, according to one version of the script. Um, but uh, this Twitter user says basically he found a version of the script from uh, a revised fifth draft from 1980. And this has actually been floating around online for a long time, but it's he just sort of brought it to our attention. And I had never noticed this. Um, and it says I'll read you uh, a line from the script here. It says uh, for the first time the effect of all that booze is apparent she's woozy marion comes out unsteadily she walks over to a snowbank and forms a snowball in each hand then slowly as though she's done it a hundred times before she presses a snowball to each of her temples so the thought is there was a scene that may have been filmed in between when that drinking contest is over and as everybody and all the patrons of the bar sort of get uh pushed out and then in between there, it, this this little shot of her grabbing these snowballs and holding them up to her temples, presumably to sort of offset the effects of the alcohol, uh, maybe just didn't make it into the final cut of the movie. But um, it still raises this really interesting question of did Sp- Steven Spielberg, the director, or uh, sound designer Ben Burt add the sound effects of those glasses breaking to purposefully mislead the audience into thinking that Marion was actually holding those shot glasses? Or is that sound there 
to convey the impact of the snowballs that she was holding crashing into shot glasses that just happened to be laying around the bar. So uh, it's sort of a, a fun little thing. And I, I love the idea that this movie came out in 1981 and there are, you know, there's still something about it. And, and it's one of the most beloved movies by cinephiles. And there's still something about it that we're not really sure about. There's still little cool new things that we're learning about this movie. We actually reached out to Lucasfilm to try to get an answer for this, and I'm, I'm still waiting to hear back from them. But, um, yeah, kind of a cool thing. Had, had either of you noticed this before? No, I definitely not anything that I had paid attention to. Uh, you know, I, I think that I had always assumed there was probably, you know, shot glasses that were maybe cold or chilled or something that she was holding up to her head for whatever reason, but it was never anything that I thought anything more than that. <laughs> I, I had never noticed it either. Um but now that I'm watching it, to to me, it almost reads as they they filmed the scene of her getting the snow and she's holding the snow up to her head, and they they it, you know cut that out and ADR'd the glass breaking to you know just explain what was you know because you know we've watched this movie a million times and no one even thinks about those not being shot glasses. But why would you be holding shot glasses up to your head? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Like it's not like in the bar that she's at that they chilled the shot glasses. I don't, I, I don't think. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. I don't think they had that. Uh, I mean, unless she stuck them in the snow in the back and I mean, it was in Nepal and it was freezing cold outside, but uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't think there's any textual evidence of the movie of her freezing the shot glasses. The other question is now that Disney owns Lucasfilm and is, you know, doing another Indiana Jones movie, do you think they would ever have a scene where, uh, you know, there's a shot, drinking contest like that seems so undisney hmm i would have to think about uh i'm sure there's been some alcohol consumed in a disney movie over the past five or ten years i can't think of one off the top of my head but maybe listeners who are listening to this and screaming into their listening devices know exactly what (laughs) know that there is one maybe you can write in and let us know but uh yeah i feel like you know, just the act of consuming alcohol is is maybe not uh, enough for Disney to um to completely bar, you know ban that as a content that they're going to completely avoid. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe a, a full on drinking contest with shots. I don't know. That might be a little much for them these days. Who knows? I I feel like whatever Spielberg wants to do, they're going to be like, sure. You know, you're making us an Indiana Jones movie. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, that brings us to the end of uh, this edition of Slash Film Daily. Actually, I should mention that there are some Aquaman images that were released today from Entertainment Weekly. We have put them up on the site uh, with a couple of articles. I will link them in the show notes, but there's not really much to talk about here. Uh, but uh, it is something to look at. So if you want to go to SlashFilm.com and check them out, you can do that there. As you can, all the stories we talked about on today's podcast. Ben... Where can people find you on the internet? You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. And you can hear me on another podcast I do called the Not Just New Movies podcast at NotJustNewMovies.com. Brad, where can I find you? Always at SlashFilm.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And check out my podcast, Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, on iTunes and some other podcasting platforms. You can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, every weekday. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns uh, to peter at slashfilm.com. And you might be featured on an episode of this podcast like uh, the letter today. Uh, Please go write and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow.